Good morning. Welcome to Another Words, part of Perfect World Network Radio. And I am your host of Another Words, Susan Share. My guest this morning is the owner of one of the most renowned jazz clubs probably in the world, Harry Schnipper. Harry, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I am just so excited about this. I mean, anybody who follows the show at all knows that I'm very into music. Jazz is not my long suit, but it's music. So, I'm there. Let me strip away the wheat from the chaff and chaff from the wheat for you. Music is music. I look at people all the time. I get invited to great many performances and presentations, and I say to people, Susan, be passionate. It's America's music. It's America's indigenous art form. And more importantly, it's born from the Great White Way, and so much of what we look at today as jazz originated on Broadway. I was going to say, a lot of people don't know what the Great White Way is. That's what it is. It's Broadway. Yes, all of almost all the standards from the 20s, 30s, and 40s were from Broadway. I go off and go into rooms and I address uh, older audiences and I say, um, do you like jazz music? And they say, well, we don't really understand jazz music. And I go, have you ever listened to... Harold Arlen? Have you ever listened to Oscars and Hammerstein? And they say, yes. I said, are you familiar with music such as Somewhere Over the Rainbow? Or are you familiar with My Favorite Things? The first being recorded by none other than Louis Armstrong, and the second one by John Coltrane. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that there are many different kinds of jazz. The simple answer is that jazz is a huge umbrella. When we oftentimes look at the shapes and forms that contain jazz music, um, it's almost genreless. Uh, rhythm and blues, neo soul, um, avant garde, straight ahead. Yes, you said trad, but also big band, and of course fusion and pop jazz. So, I mean, it's a big enough umbrella <laughs> that we could all fit underneath it. Okay. Those were the beginnings of the jazz we're talking about, was, was Broadway, right? It didn't give birth to all the kinds of jazz, but it pretty much where it came from, isn't it? It was a good starting point. I mean, you know, I, I often pontificate about jazz music, and from a purely programmable approach, because I think that's really what we're talking about, who falls with under, the, under the jazz umbrella, and how does jazz music reflect Americana, mm -hmm. uh, you can look back over a century and see the subgenres divided from one decade to another. And you may say to me, what would that mean? Well, um, there's a lot of questioning and challenging the origins of jazz, but who's to dispute people like uh, Scott Joplin with Maple Leaf Rag or uh, The Entertainer and music that became part Rag of our, our American musical fabric mm -hmm. or W.C. Handy's original Beale Street Blues or Louis Armstrong with Strutting with some Barbecue in his Hot Fives and Sevens from the 1920s. Looking at the first half of the 20th century, which was contained primarily by big bands, and who is to forget P. 
people like Ben Goodman and Dizzy Gillespie and Paul Whiteman. And these are the names that, I mean, people often say to me, well, Paul Whiteman? Who's Paul Whiteman? And I go, well, he had a vocalist in the 1920s and 30s by the name of Bing Crosby. Has anybody ever heard of <laughs> Bing Crosby? Um, Donna Shore. Um, yeah, but, you know, when I look at it, I, I think to myself, um, many of these artists that we're describing right here, right now, Susan, it's very important to realize that they um, originated on radio. And so for many of them, what happened was Paul Whiteman was brought into your home on Sunday evenings mm -hmm. with a live broadcast from NBC Studios in New York back in the 1920s. But as these vocalists began to evolve, and they did evolve, um, names like uh, Ella Fitzgerald became household names. Sarah, Sarah yeah. Vaughan, and uh, they went from the large big bands to the small ensembles in the nineteen fifties. As we, as American taste evolved, but you have to remember the two most important points. One is that James Europe, who went to uh, entertain the troops in World War One planted the first big band seeds of American jazz music abroad. I did not know that. And then um, the GIs went abroad in World War Two, and they took their music because by then vinyl had progressed, and people were bringing um, American music over the pond, as they say. And mm -hmm. suddenly Europeans became enraptured. You know, I oftentimes look at people and say, "You don't understand." The rest of the world loves yeah. America because we produce this music. Well, that's the thing. I don't think a lot of people in this country are aware that this is purely Amer an American creation. We were very privileged in 1986 to have young Congressman John Conger mm -hmm. Congress from Michigan declare uh, jazz music as America's music in um, House Resolution 57. Importing jazz for the first time in the last since the the watershed mark was about the year two thousand. Well, the reason I was thinking it's American is because music theater is purely an American creation, and that's where a lot of it came from. Yeah, this this isn't even up for for debate. No, you see, uh, yeah. you have to look at this from the big picture of life. Uh -huh. I don't care whether or not it's. Um, the Sound of Music, or Oklahoma, mm -hmm. or um, countless other Broadway creations, they began brainwashing you with jazz at a very young age. And <laughs> it's a good thing they did, because guess what? what? One of the greatest jazz songs ever done was Surrey with a fringe on top. The composers and lyricists had ulterior motives, and that can include Johnny Mercer with every song that he ever wrote <laughs> and performed or provided for people like Frank Sinatra. Right, he did a lot of behind the scenes. He didn't sing a lot of his own songs, but he did write He started it. Um, he started with the Pied Pipers in the early 1940s, and the watershed year, as we saw, with the Andrews Sisters and Andy Williams and the Williams Brothers and others. See, that's what I was going to say. People don't necessarily think of that as jazz. I mean, when the songs were on Broadway, they really weren't jazz. But then they came off Broadway. They, they were the American Songbook. And that's when people covered them and came out. A lot of it was jazz. Because, you know, that's where big bands come from. 
So I don't want to confuse It's a people. good thing they did. It's a good thing they did. I mean, did. Pat and Joey or Guys and Dolls, I mean, we all grew up with it. And the thing is, Cabaret, I mean, year after year after year, that music continues to resonate within the American culture. Yes, I just wanted to make clear to people who go, wait, no, musicals aren't jazz. In that format, no, they're not. But the songs were, Ameri- like I say, America's songs book. That's where pop songs came from. And then jazz took them over, a lot of them. And so that, that's why we're saying that those songs are jazz. It's not that Broadway is jazz. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, can I segue by that remark? Uh, Blues Alley is celebrating its 50th anniversary in this year, 2015. Yeah. And we didn't start off as a jazz club like we're defining it here today. We started off as a traditional jazz club. And the instrumentation that they used um, in the 1960s to inaugurate the club's founding were more like washboard and banjo and fiddle and things that are not necessarily associated with jazz music, but understand, now. that's correct, but understand that um, I would say that in 1960, Washington was more like New Orleans or Atlanta than it was like um, New York. So because we had these southern roots, um, yeah, it wasn't until, what, was it uh, somewhere in 59, 60 that Jackie and John moved here into the neighborhood of Georgetown in Washington, D.C.? Referring <laughs> to the Kennedys. We were a, you know, well, he had a remark that we all enjoyed. It, um, with, he, 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 he came to Washington, D.C. from Massachusetts, and he said, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, has all the charm of a northern city <laughs> and all the efficiency of the south. Put it in context, Washington was a really sleepy southern town back in the 60s. It wasn't until the Civil Rights Movement and the, um, and this is important because we're talking about Broadway and how um, culture reflects the society and how jazz music transformed itself during the 1960s and how Blues Alley went from being this quiet trad club to what it is today. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about... It's the 50th anniversary, so obviously it was started in 1965. But it started just as a place for this guy to jam with his friends, right? That's correct. It's been said, Susan, and I I find this fascinating, that people's musical taste is completely formulated by the time that they reach the age of 14. Really? Which, yeah, and... um, it explains a lot about how um, your peer group is still listening to ghost bands that are one or two hits back in the 1970s, and yet they continue to tour, regardless of the fact that the Moody Blues has not put anything out in the last 30 or 40 years. Because the Moody Blues fans still right. like the Moody Blues. Right. I look at back upon that period of time, and I found I was at an interesting crossroads. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a house. You mean when you were 15? Well, when I was 15, yeah. When I was 15, um, my household, my parents listened to Ella Fitzgerald and Pearl Bailey and Benny Goodman and Duke Ellington. And um, I'm very thankful that I did because uh, along came Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Wayne Shorter and mm-hmm. Ron Carter. And suddenly, in 1970, jazz took a 180-degree 
turn in another direction and we suddenly found ourselves in the era of fusion. Why? Because radio uh, record producers and, and radio producers, I might add, um, were trying to seek out their audience. And, you know, if you're going to advertise, and remember, commercial radio was very popular back in the 1970s. Everybody was tra transitioning oh, yeah. from AM transistor radios to FM stereophonic, and people were in tune to radio programs because they wanted to know what the new direction of music might take them. And what happened was that the convergence of jazz production and musicianship emerged as jazz and rock fusion. So now I tell people the new American songbook is all about that, which is <laughs> suddenly Steely Dan becomes the most popular music in the 1970s and 80s because it transformed listenership from its previous rock and roll roots to a way in which they were suddenly listening to more complex arrangements, and that transformed into ticket sales and to... You remember, Steely Dan never even toured. Really we went tour. from an old American song book to the new American songbook that includes all of these artists from Boz Skaggs to um, Steely Dan and the, everybody in between started to how, what is the American song? It's, the American songbook is really songs that are timeless, that transcend Yes, right. So what you're saying, what you're saying is that the American songbook is going to evolve. And it's always going to be the 40s and 50s music, but it's now going to include Steely Dan. I'd like to think so. I mean, I put together a list of artists that and I felt were... Uh, what's that again? The Beatles. Absolutely. You know, you can't go anywhere anymore without <laughs> someone slipping, whether it's, whether it's country and western or whatever genre it is. Mm -hmm. um, jazz music has now evolved into world music. Some of the greatest music... I've listened to in the past decade, actually decade and a half, is really coming from the Nordic countries. It's coming from Israel. It's coming from Japan. It's coming from South America. There is a whole stable of tremendous artists that are coming in from overseas. You know what? We wouldn't have had a Buddy Holly or an Elvis Presley or a Carl Perkins or any one of those artists anywhere else but Memphis, right where that doggone big money comes all the way down into the Delta, and suddenly folks from Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee all converge with gospel and R&D, and they produce Sun and Stack Records, and they produce Al Green, and they produce all of this amazing music, so that by the time we get to the 60s, we've got one foot in the door of rock and roll, and one in the form of R&B, and that baby became Motown. I want to go back to the history of uh, Blues Alley first. Uh, so, 65, this guy, I don't remember his name, he was a clarinetist. Tommy Gwaltney. Tom, Tommy Gwaltney. He was the oh, he was original owner. Yeah. And put it together, and it became much more than just a place for him and his friends to jam. Let's say where people can find you physically. What's the address of the club? 1073 Rear Wisconsin Avenue. It's located in the Georgetown neighborhood of Northwest Washington, D.C. And it truly is in an alley. He didn't. Blues Alley was here, Cellar Door was here, mm -hmm. uh, The Emergency was here, 
Um, Papa Fuller was here. So it was the area, it was the region that had the reputation. And Gualdi couldn't take it to the next level. He sold it to Bill Gannon, and then um, Bill oh, Gannon. Well, they didn't get those big names. Okay. Well, by seventy, by sixty-seven, he just didn't. He he never really had the intention or the or the courage to take it to the next level. Yeah, well, he wasn't a businessman. It's a complex business model. And I don't blame anybody if they can't get it because it's just there's so many moving parts that they're moving parts to the moving part. Bill Gannon took a shot at it from 68 to um, 73. It was John Bunyan, my predecessor, who owned it for the following two decades in which he really transformed it. You didn't really achieve that fulcrum of quality sound and artistry until the 1970s. Okay, and that's when all the names were coming here. What drew them? You know, um, that's a $64,000 question. I think in simplicity, <laughs> what drew them here? What happens is... Marketing has to have been part of it. No. You no. Know, the funny oh. part about it is um, these are the, all of the factors that are coming through in this conversation, which include um, suddenly Washington became not just Washington, D.C., it became the nation's capital. And suddenly we had... Um, not only did we have protest march, all, marches all the way up until 1972, remember Watergate and <laughs> Cambodia and Laos, and so you put that in perspective with the Vietnam War era and its predecessor civil rights era, and suddenly music had no color, and people were listening to every aspect of music while simultaneously you see Washington becoming the real seat of power. Artists would tell other artists. They'd be on the road. They'd be in a festival. They'd be in Europe. They'd go, hey, man, have you played this new club in, in Washington, D.C.? It's really rocking. As I became the owner of the club, the single most question I often would ask people, and people now that the world becomes so small as a result of the Internet, we did an iconic recording in 1993 called Eva Cassidy Live at Blues Alley, and it went platinum in London. I mean, in England. <laughs> and I thought to myself, really? Of all places on the planet, you know, Eva Cassidy comes out of this club and becomes number one in Great Britain. Now, you have to look back upon 50 years, and you've recorded everybody from Ahmad Jamal to Dizzy Gillespie to... Uh, Ramsey Lewis to uh, you know, virtually every artist to David Sanborn, all of these artists have recorded to this club. That has a panache too. So you know, from a marketing that, point that of view, what I'm sorry, as a panache. Let's talk about your 50th anniversary celebration because it's coming up this weekend, isn't it? It is. Good news is um, we're honored by the District of Columbia and the mayor. Muriel Bowser has proclaimed Blues Alley Jazz Month for the month of July. For instance, we brought Ramsey Lewis in for the first time in decades to perform in April. We brought back all of these great artists because we said to them, you know what, it's time you came home. And so they have, and they will continue through the balance of the year. And um, I could tell you numerous artists that are coming in that haven't performed here in decades. But I think that's important to the way jazz is a seamless conversation with its audience. So, uh, the, the festival, everything starts on Thursday, correct? The celebration. Okay. 
And it's going to be at the club, correct? That's right. Because I know you do a lot of stuff outside the club, but not this. We're going to do balloons and cupcakes and all kinds <laughs> of party favors. <laughs> It's a birthday party. Susan. It's a birthday party. It's very rare when your jazz baby hits 50. As America's oldest continuously operating jazz club, we've hit a milestone. Jazz so, Supper Club. Jazz Supper Club. Yeah, and, and we're going to get to that. Well, let me, let me do that now. It's one thing I wanted to mention is every jazz club, you can get food. But it's usually just like appetizer stuff. But you've got real meals, don't you? Um, that's a good question. I'd love to answer that question. Uh, twofold. One is that, remember we started this conversation by saying that this was a trad club, and trad clubs originated in New Orleans, so we adopted early on the Creole type of cuisine, uh-huh. and that is the formula for our food. And where else in America can you get Tony Bennett's shrimp and artichoke hearts? <laughs> Or Maynard Ferguson's Cajun chicken, or Ahmad Jamal's vegetarian Creole rice, and others. The secondary point of your point or your question is that um, about two and a half years ago, I ventured down to New Orleans yeah. and um, and I made a gastronomic journey, and I proceeded to um, go to most of the favored restaurants Mm -hmm. and reinvent our own menu and for those of you who are familiar with Creole cuisine um, it's essentially derived from one ingredient which is butter (laughs) and more butter not what I expected and more butter (laughs) so we said okay how can we make this a little more interesting a little more lighter and at the same time deliver something that is authentic the, the essence of Creole cuisine is the adaption of French cuisine and the, that's right, the that's right. um, convergence with the island flavors and spices. Mm-hmm. And that's how you came up essentially with Creole. But I do believe that the one thing that really defines a jazz supper club is the intermingling of the audience with the artist. And so you have, instead of having just fixed seating theater style. This is an atmospheric opportunity where people can interact with the artist. And in even our live recording, Susan, you always hear the occasional clatter of plates and utensils and the idea that That's life is going the, on. That's part of the jazz the experience. Way, precisely. Yeah. So how do people get to the uh, celebration? Where do they, what do they call what, what website do they go to? We've had the same web address since our inception, since its inception, and it's www.bluesalley.com. 202-337-4141. But like all good um, supper night clubs, we only open at night. So right. oftentimes... Don't, don't call during the day. Don't call early on. Now, you are a serious... You're, you're serious about music education, aren't you? That's correct. In fact, um, you've got a nonprofit. One of the things that um, 
became apparent about midway through our tenure as a jazz club was that uh, developing new jazz audiences was tantamount to our long-term stability and continuity and creating new, these new jazz audiences um, might require a little bit of a pioneering effort on our part. We were approached by um, internationally renowned jazz trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie and in 1985 <laughs> yeah. we, um, he inspired us to open up our first Blues Alley Youth Orchestra that has been uh, performing now for 30 years at such mainstay and august venues as Wolf Trap Performing Arts to um, Blues Alley to the White House and places in between including the Kennedy Center the Smithsonian Institution most of the major institutions in Washington performing arts uh, culture and then um, in 1999 I uh, was inspired to start a summer jazz camp for kids through a partnership that I pioneered through the National Park Service and then finally um, the Smithsonian Institution approached us in 2003 about providing jazz cultural content to Jazz Appreciation Month. And so I began a project that I had been uh, working on for several years then at that time, which was um, to create a standalone children's jazz festival, which we uh, did and we do. And in the short span of the past 11 years, it's expanded from three days to 11 days. Uh, three days to 12 days, and inside those 12 days, uh, there are performances scattered all across the city, and um, much of this information will be found online through our bigbandjam.org website, I was gonna ask you. but more importantly, um, we now have an annual artist in residence. We have an annual theme. This year, it was Sean Jones. Uh, the theme was the... Um, Ella and Louis the Legacy, <laughs> and we that would be Ella Fitzgerald and, and uh, Louis Armstrong. And we imported uh, charts from Louis Armstrong's house in Corona, New York. Wow! And we adapted them for big bands, and we brought in a big band from Israel, the Yellen School of the Arts, and all of these um, schools perform these legacy charts from um, Louis Armstrong. This is something I, I also wanted to get to. You you are raising the next generation of jazz listeners. You're also doing quite a bit to raise the next generation of jazz performers. I mean, that's what this youth orchestra is doing, isn't it? It is. Um, I find it curious that um, when Diz Gillespie approached us initially and we were a bit um, perplexed why we would want to have a youth orchestra, and um, I guess he, but if he asks you to, you do it. <laughs> you do. He was probably the greatest um, curator or purveyor of jazz education the industry has ever seen in the last yeah. hundred years. When took it to the next level with yeah. Dizzy, it was really about peer-on-peer um, -peer relations. Really, the the future is in trying to promote jazz as an indigenous American art form mm -hmm. and to uh, realize that not only are these young musicians going to progress to a point at which they become their own artists, but also hopefully your, your own 
and future audience. And we're happy to say and proud to say that Blues Alley, in its nonprofit capacity, has graduated students from every major music conservatory in America. As we realized that um, these student musicians would need to have access to higher education. And so we began to develop relationships with the Brooklyn College of Music and the New England Conservatory of Music and Juilliard and the New School and New York University and countless others where, to their credit and ours, they realized that there was a synergistic relationship between what we were doing, both from a for-profit and non-profit basis, and the fact that they were looking for America's best and brightest young jazz <laughs> aspiring students. One thing I, I've done, and I've done it successfully, is partner um, with the academic institutions within Washington, D.C. So our relationships are predominantly with um, three schools. Is anyone else doing this? No. The simple answer is no. Okay. I wish there were more, um, but then again, I think you need to look at it from the big picture, which is that more jazz clubs go out of business than come into business. Young student musicians say this to me so often, which is there's just not enough places for us to play. Why do other clubs come and go and Blues Alley has stuck around? Why do the others not make it? What do you do that's different? You, you can't think of anything, can you? You'd have to see his face. Everything and nothing. Okay. I mean... The simple answer is, is that Blues Alley is an anomaly. What set us apart, um, which I personally feel is unique, is that I adopted a cradle-to-the-grave concept early on. And so when I inherited the ownership of Blues Alley, I had already put into place mechanisms whereby we were facilitating and mentoring young, aspiring musicians so that by the time they reached a point of maturity and the, their brand in the marketplace was strong enough to extend beyond three and four nights at Blues Alley, we began putting them at the Kennedy Center and at the uh, mm. Strathmore and at the uh, private uh, uh, theaters. And the idea being that um, you want to, you're willing to invest in them from a standpoint of marketing music. Now, you've got to be where your audience is. I keep going back to new emerging audiences. I keep going back to developing new jazz We audiences. see that's one thing you do that sets you apart, is you build your future audience. Precisely. So yeah. we have 52,000 weekly proprietary subscribers to our website. We have an e-newsletter. We create platforms in which we educate our audiences. And I'm proud to say that there are people who make reservations at our club who don't ask who's performing. They trust, trust <laughs> that we have done our due diligence and That's that we impressive. know the caliber of the artist or act before we present them. Some of these, um, and when I say this, I mean this, these non-centarians, centarians, 90 years, people in the Ooh, 90s. Like, we're celebrating Roy, Air, Roy Haynes' birthday, uh, July 31st and August 1st, as the finale of our month-long birthday. Mm -hmm. 
He's celebrating his 90th birthday. I mean, that's a long time to be in the industry, but he goes back so many generations. We felt that it was important to do that. The person who comes in behind him is Freddie Cole, Nat King Cole's brother. He'll be in for four nights. And those are the, those are the artists that have been around. They continually return to Blues Alley, hopefully, and they eventually um, unpack their bags and they might stay longer. We try to um, program according to not only what the taste of the audience might be, but more importantly, um, challenge them to new music as well. Oh, yeah, you've got enough of an audience that you can do that. Yeah. Okay, so... 202-337-4141. So we've been talking with Harry Schnipper, owner of Blues Alley. Harry, this has been great. Is there anything you want to say that you haven't said, or have you pretty much said everything? Well, it's a shout-out to the um, young people of America and the old people of America as well, Susan, which is jazz music is alive and well and living at Blues Alley. Come out for our 50th anniversary. Help us celebrate our birthday and carry it home for the rest of 2015. All right. And you've been listening to In Other Words, part of Perfect World Network Radio. You can find us at pwnradio.net. You can find me, your host, Susan Share, and my editing and writing business at inotherwordsgroup.com. In Other Words is brought to you in part by Social Buzz Pro, online marketing experts. Thanks so much for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye.